Okay, if we're going to recreate this old pic of us that mom posted, we've got to get the outfits right. Well, for some reason, I can't find gauchos with a matching shrug anywhere. Let me try on my Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. I just use the S Pen to circle the outfit in the post, and bam, five sites to buy it from right here. Shut up! How did you... You shut it. Mom's coming. Cute outfit. Get me one. (laughs) (laughs) Circle it, find it. With the new Galaxy S24 Ultra and circle the search with Google. Upgrade now at Samsung.com. Internet connection required. Results may vary based on visuals. Hello? Hello? Hi, Catherine. Well, hi. Long time uh, since I've heard from you. Welcome to Social Distance. This is the Atlantic's show about the pandemic, hosted by me, Jim Hamblin. I'm a staff writer and a preventive medicine physician. And uh, Catherine Wells, who's joining us today, is the co-host and has been for 100 plus episodes. What happened to you? You became very hosty. Oh, well, we kept getting notes about how we should have something at the top introducing the show. And, you know, you normally take such good charge of things that in your absence, I felt, you know, I tried that out. Well, in any case. um, Where have you been? Where have I been? I've been working on a new show, which I'm hoping you'll listen to and be on someday. Uh, It's called The Experiment. It launches today. And yeah, I actually want to share it with you because um, the show is all about the underlying questions that we've been talking about all year. You know, the sort of ones, not just the virus. Well, the reasons that the virus has hit the U.S. in this particular way. And actually on the uh, on the first episode, Ed Young, um, our colleague who has been on this show and has reported on the pandemic a lot. He's on there talking about the pandemic. So I don't know. I feel like it's relevant to your interests. And uh, I wanted to make sure everybody who's listening to this knows about it. And uh, I actually want to play it at the end, if that's okay. Yeah. What If it's about failures, it's relevant to my interests. It is about failures. <laughs> the whole first episode is pretty much um, 100% failure. Okay. Um, but in the meantime, while I've been making that, the pandemic has continued, and I have some questions for you. Oh, you still care about the pandemic? Well, here's the thing. Now that, since I wasn't talking to you, I actually read your articles, <laughs> which is not something I've I've done this whole time, because I was like, why, do I, yeah, why would why I read would it? You? I'm about yeah. to talk to him. I'll just ask him. Sure. But I read an article, and I wanted to ask you about it, because last time we talked, we were talking about the variants. And it was like, oh, the variants, we don't know yet. It's probably going to be fine. Mm-hmm. But then I, re- uh, you were writing recently about the variants, and it seems like it's not fine. Well, it's complicated. I, I hopefully we uh, the complexity came across before. Um, the the variants right now pose mainly a threat to unvaccinated populations. So I think which is everyone, a, which is a lot of people. You know that number is shrinking day by day. Um, but the vast majority of the world is not vaccinated and will not be. For maybe years. So this is a problem, right? Right. Yeah. Tell me about the Brazil variant. How, how is it different? Well, I can tell you what's happening in Brazil. In the city of Manaus, in the north, in the rainforests in Brazil, they were one of the hardest hit cities early on. Mm-hmm. They had one of these scenes where the hospitals were overwhelmed. There were 
mass graves, just really catastrophic losses. And by estimates of scientists in Brazil, they had about 75% of people who had who'd been infected by the virus. So that's herd immunity, right? Well, you would think that, right? And they spent their, you know, um, this is going to blow your mind, but their summer is our winter. Um, so it's... <laughs> what? Been, yeah. This was the craziest part of the story. For Get me. out. Um, what are you talking about? So they had this very bad surge in April and May of last year, and then it became winter. And mm-hmm. they were able to open up things and it didn't get worse. And the assumption was, um, you know, they had some restrictions in place, but they were through the worst of it. Because they went through a winter, they weren't really doing the protocols and they didn't have a huge outbreak, which means like that suggests that there's a high level of immunity in the population. There were no mass gatherings. It wasn't all out, but sure, know, it sure. was It was nothing like, you know, the U.S. supposedly had stringent rules and yet we had a huge surge and, and they saw nothing like that. So the assumption was mm-hmm. those things taken, taken together, they're through the worst of it. Um, you know, when you have 75% of the population that's immune, you can certainly have some clusters and cases, but that you're not going to have this overwhelming wave. And, and then the hospitals, you know, the doctors have gotten better at treating this disease. Uh, they were stocked up on supplies, right. thought they were fine. And then in the last month, have just been overwhelmed once again, even worse than before. The public health officials there say it's it came on even faster than before, and again in the very same city. So this the population yeah. that went through this horrific thing nine months ago is going through it again, even though most people got the virus the first time. Yes. So the question is just how is that happening? And I think there are three things to think about. One is some people think that the data might have been in error. We didn't have quite 75% of people being affected, but um, it wouldn't be mm-hmm. too far off. And even if it were pretty far off, it still shouldn't have led to what we're seeing. Mm-hmm. The second would be, you know, we've talked a lot about waning immunity. It's been nine months since that first surge. How many of these right. people had, especially if you have a milder asymptomatic case, how many people had uh, just what's the verdict on immunity how long immunity lasts right now like what is the data i feel like i hear i i don't know well that's why this is sort of an interesting case study um Mm -hmm. we we haven't seen a lot of reinfection which is to say that immunity seems to be pretty durable and that it seems to correlate with if you got more severe illness you're gonna have a longer lasting immune response versus if you tested positive and had an asymptomatic case that doesn't seem to be really reliable um but we haven't seen waves of reinfection. And and that is what appears to be happening here. But then there's this third variable, which complicates that, which is this variant, which is there. And so we know that variant has mutations that can help this strain evade the immune system. So it seems to be a combination, likely, of people's immunity waning, of this different strain being somewhat effective at evading existing immune mechanisms. And so it doesn't mean that that strain would affect every population the same way. It could have been this sort of perfect storm of circumstances, but that's what we really need to understand. That seems really troubling. Yeah. Is it troubling to you? Well, 
Yes, because we have a very US-centric focus and, you know, reasonably so. I think most of our listeners are in the US and most of the messaging we're hearing is about, you know, how soon does the US get to herd immunity? You know, Dr. Fauci mm-hmm. says, I won't, I won't, you know, do the voice, um, but 70 <laughs> or 80% of people. Uh, um, but this idea that you might get a population that's at herd immunity and things are fine or, or close to it, or seeing, seeing the effects at least of population immunity, and then see a wave when you weren't expecting it because of this combination of waning and new variant is concerning. You know, you get a more reliable and robust response with a vaccine than with most infections, it seems. You do? Yeah. So do we know anything about whether this Brazil variant can infect people who've had the vaccine? There's no evidence of that. Or a vaccine? There's no evidence of that. Right. And none of these vaccines are perfect, but when you get a whole population that's vaccinated, they should be effectively perfect. And they are perfect at preventing severe disease uh, so far in what we've seen. So it shouldn't be scary to people who've been or planning to get vaccinated. I don't think that changes the game, but it does remind us that we have so far to go in the world. And if we were, you know, there are places in the world that I think that we were assuming were going to be pretty safe because they'd been through the worst of it. And this is just raising Mm -hmm. the question of whether they're going to go through another, you know, kind of nightmare scenario. Um, I don't think it's likely in the U.S. and and other wealthy countries, but there is a lot of the world that won't have access to the vaccine until 2022, possibly even 2023. Really? Yeah. I mean, I know that's a whole separate conversation, but it seems like one we should have at some point, which is we've talked so much about equity in the US, but like we have not talked that much about global equity. I know you talked with Maeve about it last week, but it's it's pretty brutal. Right. You know, we had Ruth Faden on the professor at Johns Hopkins, a bioethicist, and she's super smart on this stuff. And these variants sort of remind us that it's not just about moral obligation or empathy. <laughs> um, the, the nationalist approach to vaccination is not in anyone's national interest because if the U.S. got to 100% vaccination and there were 30 countries that were at 10% vaccination, every time the virus is transmitted, it, it mutates and it evolves and you have this capacity for new strains to develop. And if you just let it run wild over a lot of the world, it very well has the capacity to someday come back in, in a form that is can work around our our vaccines. So what is to be done? I mean, what, like, we can't speed up vaccine production, or can we? <laughs> um, well, yes, we could. I think we should talk more about that next week, right? I mean, you said you were going to play your episode, and I... I do want to play my it. episode, but I, I am also eager to hear about that. Well, I'll say in the short term that nothing I've said here, even though it is scary and has, you know, there there are a lot of remaining questions about exactly what happened here, whether it was a chance confluence of things that's really unlikely to happen and get anywhere else. Um, and it doesn't, shouldn't change anything in the short term. This is not something that should change anyone's plans to get vaccinated or affect what anyone's doing in their day to day. 
we're just sort of planting the seed that we need to remember when we talk about herd immunity, it is a global concept. We we gotta not talk about seventy percent of the U.S. or eighty percent of the U.S. We gotta talk about eighty percent of the world. It's so daunting. It's a big project. Uh, speaking of big projects, though, good good segue. Good segue. Okay, well, I am going to play my episode. And I say my episode, but it's the result of a huge team of people. Um, I can't wait to hear it. So this is the first episode of our new show. The best thing to do is hop over to that feed. It's called The Experiment and subscribe to that show. That way you'll get this episode and future episodes. But if you're not quite sure yet, and you want a little taste of what you'll be subscribing to, I'm going to play the first episode right here, it is to set it up a little bit. This show is just, um, it kind of is, honestly, in many ways uh, connected to the things we've been talking about this whole year. It's trying to investigate some of the underpinnings of our society and government and trying to figure out how we got to a point where we are now, where it feels like the sort of idea we have our, in our head of this country and its reality are so far apart. Um, I say we, but I guess I mean me. <laughs> so yeah, I, I'll be very curious for, for people to listen to it and for us to get feedback, but I, I just wanted to share it with, uh, with you and everybody here. And I should also explain that I, I'm going to keep working on this. So I'll be a little busy for a little while. And so, um, we're asking Maeve if she could, she could come back and hang out with you some more. And cause the vaccine question, I mean, the pandemic questions are not going away. No, they aren't. And maybe it's kind to come on and laugh at my jokes. Uh, She's, it's so enjoyable to hear her um, make fun of you. So I, <laughs> I'm really grateful that she's generous enough to continue doing that. Yeah. Well, we'll talk Thank about you, vaccines um, next week. But, but for now, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to hear this. I have not heard it yet. And I know <laughs> you've, been, you've been putting a lot of work into it. And uh, I am sure it's going to be great. Okay. So um, this show today was produced by Kevin Townsend with help from senior producer AC Valdez. Uh, and instead of my usual spiel here, I'm just going to say head over to the experiment feed and subscribe, please. I hope you enjoy it. But don't unsubscribe from social distance. No. You can, you can have, have two both. podcasts in your life. Both things can be true. Correct. Okay. Talk to you later, Catherine. Okay. All right. Bye. Drill fact, this is Mike. Hi, Mike. This is Julia Longoria from The Atlantic and WNYC. How are you doing? I'm doing good. How are you doing? Good. Um, we are going to just kind of jump in. Are you Are you ready to, to go back in time? <laughs> sure. Okay, cool. Let's see what we can do. Who were you in December of 2005? I was a real rowdy guy, I guess you could say. Why do you think you were rowdy at that time? Because I beat people up. 
15 years ago, Mike Belderain was a little rough around the edges. So, you know, if someone was an asshole in a bar, I'd go have a beer by you until you'd say something to me, and then it'd be all bad for you. He was a bit of an asshole. There were a lot of things that pissed him off, but there was one thing that he loved completely. <laughs> I mean, I lived to hunt elk, literally. I lived to hunt elk. He lived in Montana, not far from Yellowstone National Park, where elk are everywhere. And Mike had the hunt down to an art form. Elk hunting's hard, but if you could call good, you know, I'd guarantee my hunters a shot at 30 yards and closer. What does that, what does that mean? Sorry, I'm like from Miami, Florida. <laughs> I live in Brooklyn. Like I got, I got nothing. So That's right. what does that mean? So you have a cow call, you Im- imitate a cow call and you call them in. So you, you make the sound of a cow because, like, the elk Correct. are, are yep. looking for cows to yep. with whom to mate? Is that what yep. it is? Yep. Okay, cool. Pretty, pretty terrible way to die. Can you, can you do it for me? No. So why, you might ask, are we talking to this self-proclaimed asshole about killing elk? It's because of this one particular elk, a star-crossed elk, that changed the course of Mike Belderine's life and walked him right into a hole in the U.S. Constitution. It started one snowy morning in December of 2005. Mike set out on horseback just outside Yellowstone National Park. Lots of mountains and lots of snow and trees. Open country. Eventually, he spotted a group of elk off in the distance, but he set his sights on this one particular elk. That was the biggest bull I'd ever seen. He was a trophy, trophy bull that I've been chasing my whole life. It was his white whale, his trophy bull. How did you feel at that moment? Adrenaline like you wouldn't believe. Happy and nervous together. Nervous because I knew it was illegal. Illegal? Because hunting season was over, and he was standing inside Yellowstone National Park, where you're not allowed to hunt at all. You knew if you killed the elk, you'd be breaking the law. I knew that if I got caught, I'd be in trouble. But he took out his rifle anyway and aimed. I meant to shoot him in the rib cage behind the shoulder so that he would go into the trees and die. But when I shot, and I hit him in the head and he dropped, fell right where he landed. It was the worst sick feeling I ever had in my life. I was like, oh no, not good. Not good at all. Instantly, Mike knew. He'd shot an elk while standing inside of Yellowstone National Park. I was standing in the park by 100 feet. The evidence of his crime, the carcass, was laying out in the open. Anyone could see. So then it was a race to get him out of there. D- did you take the whole elk uh, into no. the car? And, okay. Nope. I just so took tell the... Me. The what? <laughs> did you say tummy? I said tell me. <laughs> oh. No, not tummy. <laughs> I, <tell me. laughs> I thought you said tummy. I'm like, yeah, I took the tummy. No, I... What did you do I, with I, the tummy? <laughs> I left it. So at that point, we took the, the head and the antlers from the elk. Detached him and raced out of there. 
Mike knew he'd just committed a crime, a serious federal crime. What he didn't know was that, technically, he'd just committed the perfect crime. Because he was standing in one of the only spots in the country where the law shouldn't have been able to touch him. A place inside Yellowstone National Park where you could get away with not just hunting elk, but by the letter of the law, you should be able to get away with murder. I'm Julia Longoria, and this is The Experiment, a show about our unfinished country. I've been thinking about holes in the American project after, you know, an armed insurrection took place on our nation's capital. With that and the global pandemic and everything else we've lived together this year, it sort of feels like we've all collectively stepped into this huge pothole that we didn't see coming. And the question now is, how do we fix this? How do we move forward And how do we repair the weak spots that left us vulnerable to all this in the first place? Those are huge questions, and it's going to take a long time to answer them. So today, I'm starting with something small, a tiny problem in a remote place that no one even knew about until one guy— I'm Brian Kalt. —uncovered it. I'm a law professor at Michigan State University— Brian Kalt is obsessed with the tiniest details in the law. I was the sort of kid who, if I'm coloring something and I colored a little bit outside the lines, I would have a tantrum and crumple it up and throw it away and start all over again. He looks for the mistakes. Loopholes, weak spots, looking for potential hazards and suggesting ways to patch them up before anyone steps on them. Brian Kalt has fashioned himself as a sort of constitutional plumber, He peers into the wonky insides of our legal system and tries to spot the holes. There's there's a loophole in uh, presidential term limits. There's some dispute about the line of succession. There would be a tremendous incentive for people to kill the candidates. In any other year, he might sound kind of like a prepper. The article that I wrote on impeaching people who've already left office... I published it in 2001. Maybe you'd use the 25th Amendment if the president is running amok. But this year, when many of his old predictions made headlines, he sounded a lot like a prophet. I wondered whether the president could pardon himself. The New York Times is reporting now that the president has been discussing pardoning himself. What can you tell us? But the loophole that Brian is most famous for is the one in Yellowstone National Park. The one that elk hunter Mike Belderain stumbled into. I discovered a a loophole where there's this 50-square-mile zone in Idaho where you can commit crimes with impunity, um, get away with murder. Brian found a zone of death, a place where it would be unconstitutional to prosecute a murderer because of a tiny mistake that Congress made. It has to do with the Sixth Amendment. Number six gave us the right to a local jury. The founders were paranoid about being controlled from far away, so they wanted justice to be hyper-local. They said juries are going to be 
very close to the scene of the crime, from the same state and the same federal district. That seems simple, but in Yellowstone, Congress drew a very messy map. We had Yellowstone National Park before we had the state of Wyoming, before we had the state of Idaho, before we had the state of Montana. When the states were drawn, Congress colored outside the lines. States and federal districts don't line up. All of Yellowstone is one district, the District of Wyoming, but inside that district, there are slivers of two other states, Idaho and Montana. I don't know, they could have drawn the state boundaries to follow the park boundaries, but then you wouldn't have had this sort of nice, neat Wyoming rectangle. It's really a trapezoid, but we don't need to get into that. And here's the issue. No one, zero people, live in the Idaho sliver. And only a few people live in the Montana sliver. Which means that if you commit a crime in one of these places, it would be very hard to find a jury there. No jury means no trial, and the Constitution guarantees a trial by jury, so that means, technically, you can't be prosecuted. One of the reasons that I went to law school in the first place was this idea that the law mattered and that if you master the law, you have an understanding of the law that you can make things happen the right way, the way they're supposed to. This is what really upset Brian. Our Constitution is supposed to matter. It was as near a perfect document as has ever been written. But without the Constitution, we would be an entirely different country than we are today. The Constitution, this amazing fabric of our nation, is our protection. We spend a lot of time talking about this document, mythologizing it almost. Lawyers spend careers parsing every word. Dissertations have been written just about the placement of commas in this thing. And then to realize there's a place where a major right in the Constitution just doesn't apply? I really just, I want them to fix it. Have you heard of the Sixth Amendment right to a jury of your peers? Uh, I, uh, no, I, I haven't. I am new to America and your many amendments. <laughs> when I found out about this loophole, I called Ed Young. Yeah, I'm Ed Young. I'm a staff science writer at The Atlantic, where I've been covering the COVID-19 pandemic for the last 9,500 years. Ed is a British journalist born in Malaysia. And okay, a British pandemic reporter may seem an unlikely choice for commenting on an American murder loophole, but Ed was one of the first journalists to warn that the U.S. might not be ready for a pandemic. So what he really reports on is risk, our government's ability to prevent unlikely catastrophes, things that seem like they could never happen, not here. You assume that the legal system of the greatest country in the world can't possibly have a loophole that allows people to get away with murder. Surely, if that actually ever happened, like, there would be some way to go, it's fine, we'll get a jury, like, loophole, schmoophole, it'll be fine. And I think we sort of assume that with a pandemic. 
I think that a lot of folks, even the ones who had warned about pandemics, have been surprised at just how badly America has dealt with the crisis this year. A question for you. I'm just curious what you think. Do you think a loophole like that, that's kind of obscure, um, do you think it matters? Um, so, does it matter? I think one way to look at this would be to think about the potential cost of fixing the loophole. Like how much effort would go into patching it, right? Because if it's not a lot, like if it really is just, I'm going to, you know, add an, another amendment. You, you all are very fond of your amendments <laughs> here. And the problem goes away and it's easy. Then, then I think you could reasonably ask, like, why not do that? Why not indeed? The solution is very simple. Brian Kalt had what he thought was a very easy solution to the zone of death loophole. Dear Representative Blank. First, he did what we're all taught to do in school. He wrote to government officials to ask them to solve this problem. I wrote a letter to the Department of Justice. He wrote letter after letter. The U.S. Attorney's Office in Wyoming staff of the relevant subcommittees in the House and Senate. They just had to pass a law to redraw the district lines. They should see this as a no-brainer. They'll say, oh, yeah, that's funny. Uh, Yeah, let's take care of that right away. And as he waited for responses to these letters... This is a map of Yellowstone National Park. For the most part... A funny thing happened. Brian Colt says there is a hole in the Sixth Amendment big enough to run a crime spree through. In part of Yellowstone, it's not how to get away with murder, it's where. It's called the zone of death because of a loophole... Brian published an article in a legal journal about this, and it got a lot of attention. I don't want to say it went viral because, I mean, it was a constitutional law article. They don't go viral. It was maybe the only time that a Law Journal article made it into the National Enquirer. Have you ever heard of the Yellowstone Zone of Death? There have even been viral tweets and TikToks. Because I know that you're the one who killed my dog. Ah! With little skits about the zone of death. Zone of death! Even with all of that attention, Brian could not get a single elected representative to talk to him directly about this problem. Uh, do you expect or have you already been contacted by, you know, the screenwriter of Oceans 27 or, or Law and Order about to craft some plot that's based in, in the Idaho portion of Yellowstone Park? Uh, I suppose that plots of legal thrillers have turned on odder oddities than that. I uh, haven't been contacted by anyone and I hope I'm not. Now, there is a catch. But a year after Brian's article came out, someone did contact him. Someone who'd read Brian's paper and urgently wanted to talk to him about the loophole. As soon as I read it, I knew this is, this is my way into Yellowstone Park to tell that story. And now, Free Fire by C.J. Box. I'm C.J. Box. I've written 27 novels. Wyoming's best-selling novelist, C.J. Box, is the kind of prolific writer whose paperbacks you can buy at the airport. He sold over 10 million books worldwide, and they've been translated into 30 languages. And of course, made into an audiobook. Part one. A half hour after Clay McCann turned over his still warm weapons. You know, the book opens with the guy slaughtering some campers. 
and then turning himself into the ranger station, knowing that if they try to prosecute him, he's likely not to be convicted. Do you want to call a lawyer? McCann said, you don't understand. I am a lawyer. Because he knows about this loophole because he's a lawyer. A lawyer kind of like Brian Colt. I asked Brian what he thought about the resemblance. If he had made, instead of a small-town lawyer, had made it a pointy-headed, sociopathic law professor uh, as the protagonist, that might have, that might have hit too close to home. I don't consider myself a sociopath. Then he smiled as a sharing a joke. The whole plot is like Brian Colt's worst nightmare. The puzzle in the book is, why did this lawyer, local lawyer, shoot all these campers and kill them? We'll just never fucking know, I'm afraid. The plot gets very existential. There's no point, Keaton said, because we're all going to die. I don't know where we're going, but it seems like we're headed somewhere. Story of my life, Joe said. Spoiler alert. Ultimately, we learn the lawyer-murderer was part of this big corporate conspiracy and a government cover-up. He never pays for his crimes in court, but he does burn to death in a hot spring. The story is pretty dark, but that didn't stop it from having a wide appeal. Free Fire got onto the New York Times extended bestseller list. Then, all of a sudden, I got responses. One of the readers of C.J. Box's book was a senator, Senator Mike Enzi from Wyoming. Well, reading is such an exciting thing. I read about 100 books a year. This one's Free Fire, which is about Yellowstone Park. What you're hearing is a recording of Enzi on a C-SPAN show called Book TV. C.J. Box writes some phenomenal stuff about Wyoming. Uh, I get advanced copies of his book, usually. He actually would write little reports to me on each book. And I've done a book report on every one of them since I got out of graduate school. Like a book report in high school. There was a zone in Wyoming, well, in Yellowstone Park, that was actually considered to be part of Idaho, but nobody lived there. So there would be no jury of your peers. This book is about this issue, and, you know, da-da-da-da-da, and this is what happens, and I enjoyed it. Huh. And consequently, maybe you could commit murder there. And uh, so he asked me to make sure that wouldn't be a possibility before the book came out and encouraged And for a little while, it seemed like government was working the way Brian thought it should. The representative for this area was aware of the problem, Brian had presented the solution, and the senator set out to fix it. So November 2006, I had the contact with Senator Enzi's office. And over the course of the next several months... And then in January of 2007, I followed up. Brian had back and forths with Senator Enzi's office that seemed promising. Enzi reached out to the Department of Justice to solve the issue. In February of 2007, Enzi sent a letter to Attorney General Alberto Gonzalez asking him to look into this matter. But in the end... And then in May of 2007, Enzi sent the letter explaining why the department wasn't going to be doing anything about it. And could you read a little bit from that letter? Sure. I have spoken with individuals at the Department of Justice and other members of the law enforcement community. They have assured me that, should a crime be committed in the zone of death, they would move forward with prosecution, and have suggested that the courts would allow the prosecutors to move forward. 
At this point in time, we will hope the problem is a hypothetical and it remains as such. However, I continue to take this matter seriously and I will be evaluating the available solutions to determine what is practical and what is possible. Did you ever hear back about what is practical and what is possible? Well, it it looked like um, not doing anything was the only thing that proved practical. I reached out to Senator Enzi to ask him why he didn't end up closing this loophole. I got in touch last December, right before he retired from his 24 years in the Senate, and he declined to be interviewed through a press secretary. I tried again in the new year, and the only response I heard back was actually through CJ Box, who told me he's not doing any post-retirement interviews. I recognize that Congress has many more pressing matters, less hypothetical, actual problems to deal with. Not that they're doing anything about those things either. But in a typical Congress, what gets passed is renaming post offices. They find the time to rename post offices. This is not the most important thing in the world. Uh, It's not even close. But they have a system in place where if there's a good reason to rename a post office, then it happens. If they can do that, they can do this. Senate 4684, an act to designate... The very last bill that Senator Enzi introduced in the Senate, by the way, it renamed a post office. Street ...in Thermopolis, Wyoming, as the Robert L. Brown Post Office. Is there objection to the consideration of the bill? So, after years of trying to get this loophole fixed, even after it became a viral sensation, a hit crime novel, an item on Senator Enzi's agenda, Brian hit a brick wall. It was a hypothetical problem. Congress was not going to fix something that was so unlikely to happen. Until it did happen. Sort of. When there arose an actual case. When I shot and I hit him in the head and he dropped, it was the worst sick feeling I ever had in my life. I was like, oh no, not good. I saw what that would look like here. The Elk Hunter, after the break. When we last left Mike Belderain, he'd poached an elk while standing inside Yellowstone, chopped off the head, and left the carcass out in broad daylight. That was the biggest bull killed in Montana that year. He felt bad about it, but not that bad about it. This was the biggest kill of his career. It was his trophy bull. So he took the head to a taxidermist, got it stuffed, and mounted it for everyone to see. Well, that's why I was killing him. It wasn't until a full year later that Mike was arrested and we got our first and only test of the perfect crime theory. My shooting that elk had nothing to do with that perfect crime area. Of course, Mike had never heard of Brian Colt or the zone of death. And even if he had... That bull could have been standing deep inside the park where I had to pay an entry fee to get into it. I still would have killed that elk. But 
his lawyers tried the argument anyway. They said if Mike Beldurain's case were to go to trial, the court would have a very hard time finding a jury that lived inside the little sliver of Montana inside Yellowstone where he killed the elk. They would almost certainly violate Mike Beldurain's constitutional right to a local jury. And the judge basically said, well, that's an interesting but esoteric argument, but I can't just let him go just because the Constitution says so. And so he didn't. His lawyer tried some other tactics. Made it sound like I was a freaking hero. He brought up how I has a full-ride basketball scholarship, did all these great things, and donated to here, donated to there. I wanted to smack him. I was like, oh my God, sit down. <laughs> Wait, you, you were mad at the lawyer for making you sound like a hero? Yeah, I was like, dude, God <laughs> almighty, are you crazy? <laughs> sit down. Fact of the matter, I was there for shooting a freaking elk and I left the carcass. So I still felt like shit about it. For Mike, this was not about the Constitution. It was about the principle of the thing in a weird way. I mean, did I deserve to get in trouble? Absolutely. I mean, what I did was the dumbest thing ever. You'll never hear me say what I did was right. No lawyer would have got me out of it, nor should he have. Anyone that knows me knows I fucked up. Excuse my language. Knows I did wrong. I felt like shit. If someone else would have did what I did, I'd have beat him up. Let's put it that way. So Mike Belderain took a plea. He pled guilty. And instead of the seven years he might have faced if he went to trial, he took four years. Like I said, I definitely deserved to get in trouble. But four years? No. Felt like shit. You know what I mean? <laughs> Had five kids. And in his plea, he agreed to a condition that he would never appeal his case based on the zone of death. The fact that they put him in prison in a way that left the loophole as open as it had been, if not wider, um, that was the part about it that was hardest for me to swallow. Maybe it's from when I was a kid watching Schoolhouse Rock that the image of the lawmaking process that I grew up with was... I'm just a bill. Uh, yes, I'm only a bill, and I'm sitting here on Capitol Hill. And he says, you know, when I started, I was just an idea. Some folks back home called their local congressman, and he said, you're right, there ought to be a law. And he sat down, and he wrote me out, and he introduced me to Congress. And I became a bill. That's my image of it, I guess. Um, and every step in this process was telling me that that was just not so. So with the Brian Colt case, did anything change after the elk incident? No, no, nothing right. changed. Atlantic staff writer Ed Young again. Ed has spent a lot of the last year wondering why the government was not better prepared for the pandemic. Why the warnings and advice of many experts were ignored. Why such a powerful country didn't live up to its image. Okay, so this is the thing that concerns me now. I worry about our capacity to learn from our past mistakes. Now, obviously, like a pandemic is not the same as this murder loophole, because in the worst case scenario, you would expect like maybe a few people to fall foul of the problem that Brian Colt identified, whereas in a pandemic, almost by definition, it's a whole world that's at risk. All of this does hinge on our ability to look at a rare but potentially catastrophic outcome 
and take the steps that are necessary to ward against it. And it's interesting, I think, that even though we have seen what happens when we don't prepare for that, I don't know if we are capable of mustering the collective consciousness and the political will to actually address those problems. Why do you think we have trouble fixing things as a country that aren't currently on fire? I think there's a lot of different reasons. Um, To pick one that I think is relevant to the loophole story that you told me, I think America is possessed of this extreme sense of exceptionalism. I mean, the country is famous for it, for thinking itself the greatest nation in the world. And I think if you truly internalize that message, then a lot of things flow from it. You know, it takes work and effort to be exceptional. And if you think that you're already there, then you're probably not going to put that effort in. Yeah, I I wonder if sometimes on our good days, that idealism or exceptionalism would push the country, push individuals to try to keep making the ideal true on our good days. I I don't, you know, I don't know that that's true. And and really? that's yeah, I really don't. I think that if you tell people that they are exceptional for a very long period of time, you breed complacency. You don't foster innovation. Hmm. I mean, honestly, like why try if you already believe yourselves to be great? And uh, and I worry because I think we still have a lot to do and in some ways the vaccines that we have now and that are being rolled out, I think are more likely to tip us towards forgetfulness. If anything comes from this year, I hope that it's this understanding that there's a lot left to fix. Mike Belderain's four years in prison were rough. The guards, the people there, no one could believe I was in prison for shooting a freaking elk. It was a bad deal. It wasn't even a bad deal for me. It was a bad deal for my family. They're the ones that hurt the worst. But he's out now. He's back with his family. And at least for him personally, he says he dropped some of the pride, some of the ego that made him think that he could get away with a crime like that. He knew he messed up and he put in the work to try to fix it. Well, I mean, I did, you know, I was rowdy back in the days. I did a lot of stupid shit, you know, and never got in trouble. I don't know, just greed. Greed and fame and all that bullshit got to me. I still am a family guy, still got horses. I still hunt, I hunt more now than I did then. I just don't, you know, I don't break no laws. My kids don't break no laws. Do you think you shed your like rough ways of of, of no i'm years. still i'm still an asshole <laughs> <laughs> but i don't drink you know what i mean i went to aa i did all that and it made me a better person i don't know how to say it i'm really i take pride in my work i take pride in my crew i love my job i love my family and how, how do you make sense of of everything that happened to you now everything happens for a reason what what reason, then, did this happen for? I don't know. <laughs> no idea.
This episode of The Experiment was produced by Julia Longoria and Alvin Melleth, with editing by Catherine Wells and sound design by David Herman. Our team also includes Matt Collette, Tracy Hunt, Natalia Ramirez, and me, Gabrielle Burbet. Music by Tasty Morsels. Special thanks to Jennifer Jarrett and Montana State University Library's Acoustic Atlas and the Yellowstone National Park Sound Library. The Experiment is a co-production of The Atlantic and WNYC Studios. Oh, yeah.